Thank you, worship band. That was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. One thing I forgot to mention, um, Carol and Becky are going to have a table in back. There's ways to partner uh, prayerfully, financially, so go back, check out what they're doing. They have a sign-up sheet, see how you can get involved in Poland, because it's awesome. And I do have just one question as we start. Is our executive pastor back in the room? No? Why was he, why couldn't he just wear regular pants with that? Why was he wearing tights? There he is. He's coming in. Yeah? All right. Well, that was good, yeah? Oh, you're still hanging out. It's church time. Come on in. No, we're still there. Why were you wearing tights? Why couldn't you just wear regular pants? It was part of the costume? Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. All right, keep going. All right. For those of you who don't know, my name is George Kenworthy. I'm the spiritual formation outreach pastor uh, here at YZ. And I have to tell you that I am feeling good, super awesome this morning, completely at peace, mainly because I'm up here with our community connecting pastor. And what that means is that uh, I can be as dry as I want to in my sense of humor, and I don't have to explain anything to you. She'll translate. (laughs) I'm free. But uh, for those of you that don't know Shelly, which I don't think is anybody, because probably even if it is your first day you've met Shelly, she is kind of the heart and soul and the glue that holds this place together. And I mean that in the best possible way and totally sincerely. The community, she's involved in every aspect of every ministry, and she loves you. She wants you to feel connected. She's the most inclusive person I ever have met And it is a privilege to stand up here next to you this morning. Yeah, of course. So we're in the second sermon of our series, Spiritual Essentialism, right? Yeah, it is hard to say. The, The idea behind this is asking the question, what is church? And we're trying to simplify it. And a lot of churches around the nation are doing this. What is church? What do I need to know to be fully in line with Jesus? How does Jesus invade every aspect of my life? So I'm not living a compartmentalized life, but Jesus and I are all together all the time. Every aspect is to him. And we've broken it down into three areas. Try to make it real simple. Worship, which Kevin did last week, community, which we're doing this week, and then serve next week, service. Today we're going to look at what God has designed for us in community. We're going to take a look at the early church in the book of Acts and community there. And I think what we're going to see is being part of community is really cool. Because what it does is it warms your heart, it softens your heart to hear the voice of God. What we're also going to see is on the other side is if you are not involved in community, if you are neglecting consistent Christian community, that goes hand in hand with the cooling of your heart for the things of Christ. Last week, Kevin gave us a challenge. He said, come to church three times a month, and he gave us that challenge because it's a North American trend that people are coming to church once a month or so. And the reason why he gave, it that, gave us that challenge is because the cooling of our hearts for the things of Christ begins when we start taking corporate worship lightly. When we start saying, you know what, 
I can miss one or two Sundays, no big deal, but what happens is it progresses to proclivity to not show at any little excuse. Rarely have I seen someone that has turned from God or Jesus who is warm. What has happened is it slowly happens over time by neglecting this is God's grace, this is his gift to us, community, doing life together. It happens week in, week out, life on life. We encourage each other into boldness and humility. We strengthen each other up. We hold each other up in fatigue. And frankly, what happens in community, we prevent each other from living mediocre, lukewarm Christian lives. God has filled the New Testaments with one another commands. You cannot be a Christian in New Testament terms on your own. Life together is vital. Unfortunately, unfortunately, what has happened, I think, in North America is a lot of us are confused with going to church and belonging to church. Going to church is not a biblical idea. Belonging to God's community is a biblical idea. And what falls on you and me is to take God's commands seriously, to take them to heart, to actually go through the process of transformation and continue walking with God in community and take the responsibility of engaging in community seriously. And Shelly and I are so passionate about this, and we've been talking about spiritual formation and community and how the two go hand in hand, how they're linked, how they overlap. So passionate, we wrote up one vision statement for both of our ministry areas, and it's this. Christian spiritual formation refers to the intentional communal process of growing in our relationship with God and becoming conformed to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a choice. It is a process. It is spirit-empowered, and it happens in community. So oftentimes I think we get to a place where we say, okay, we're answering the what question, but maybe not the how. So this morning, what we really want to do is not only address the what, but really get down into the how do we, how do we do this thing? What does this look like? So a couple of, maybe a month ago, we were sitting in the same room and someone that we love very much asked this question. So what is community anyway? And I, I think it took us aback to, to hear the question voiced like that. And I couldn't get it out of my head. So I went home. I, I looked up in the dictionary because that's the old school way that we used to look up what is what is something. So I, so I like look in the dictionary for community. And I, the definition is up on the screen. And it basically refers to the idea that in the dictionary anyway, community is you've got a similar place. You're, you're dealing with similar or common characteristics. You have shared attitudes, interests, maybe goals. And then it talks about this thing. It says there might even be a feeling of fellowship. So I kind of walked away and I didn't feel like that answered the question, what is community anyway? So then I did what you guys would do. You students, you're so good. I Googled it. I literally Googled the question, what is community anyway? And guess what? Stanford did a study. And the title of the study is, what is community anyway? (laughs) So I was like, wow, this is so cool. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to read. But basically, they dealt, too, with the what. Here's some of the things that they said in their study. They said it's really easy to say, we all want community. 
It's a common human need, but what they said is we never explain it. It, We have good intentions, but insufficient understanding and implementation, and that leads to the downfall of many well-intended communities. Together, we don't want Wyzetta Free to be a well-intended community. We want to be an intentional community. We want to implement community, so that means we have to get to the how. So I'm going to tell a little bit of story, and, and I think maybe it will frame it up for you to why this means so much to me. And George, that was a great introduction, and it's an honor to work with you too. But here's the deal, friends. Nobody's just born with this sort of community thing, and they just get connecting. And I want to tell you, I'm going to stand here and say to you, I did not. Before I was 14 years old, we had moved state to state six times. I went to a lot of different schools where I felt like I did not fit in the circle of togetherness that they all had. I was the new girl looking in, and just about the time I felt like maybe, maybe there was somebody for me to be a friend with, we moved again. My parents made it a grand adventure, and our family was close, and the blessings of moving and learning to adapt and adjust are tremendous, but I always had that nagging thing that I can only just now articulate, which is, how do you get it? How do you do community? My wise mother would say to me, Shelley, you have to be a friend to have a friend. Ugh. Do you do this? Did you roll your eyes? I rolled my eyes. I'm like, everybody in the room is already friends but me. A couple of weeks ago, Austin and I were standing in the parking lot. We were talking about this very thing as we were greeting you when you came in. If we change our attitude, and this is what she was trying to get me to do, if we change our attitude to recognize everybody in the room feels exactly like you do, rather than nobody in the room feels exactly like I do, It changes the way we do community. So I spent that time growing up wondering, how do you get this thing that everybody else has? And then we moved to Golden. Show them the sign. Can you read that? (laughs) Wow. Does your hometown have a sign across the main drag that says, Howdy, folks. Welcome to Golden. I felt welcomed. Now, granted, I still had to work on community, but every time I went to school... We saw that. For 37 years, Steve and I went to the same church. We were in the same youth group. We had the same friends. We grew in community with people we loved. We served together and he coached and I was, I was in the bleachers. We had community for 37 years in the same place and then five years, six months, 27 days and four hours ago, I landed in Minnesota. And I thought, I really did think this, you guys. Is it possible again? Is that thing that I wished for from the time I was a little girl possible again? Is it all about being in the same place with people? Is that how community comes? That's what the dictionary says. You share a place. Because this is a new place for me. Is it all about a shared um, history? Because when we came here, we had 37 well, okay, we, we, had, we had like 50 years of history that you didn't even know about, and you had a lot of years of history that we didn't know about, so is community just about a shared history? Is community just about a shared affinity, something that we all like? Like, do we share the same affinity for football teams? I, I'm just asking. Yeah. No. <laughs> 
is community all about shared experiences? Because if it is, it's going to take a long time. This is what I thought. It's going to take a long time to have enough shared experiences with you all, with my neighbors, with with new friends I meet, with people that I might work with in a different job. It's going to take a long time to have shared experiences. Is that what community is? Is community about a specific group of people? Like if I find them, they're my besties, and I'm only ever always just with them, and that's community? Is that what it is? Is it a feeling, or is it a real intangible thing? This was my story. And my wise husband said to me, Shell, make a friend every day. (laughs) He could have said, you got to be a friend to have a friend. But he said, make a friend every day. Two very wise people in my lives, you guys. And that is at the beginnings of community. So don't sit there and think, oh, she just knows how to do it. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's an intentional thing. And what we see in the book of Acts is that Jesus intended for there to be community. So I'm going to set up without reading it all. If you have, a, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, we're looking at Acts chapter 1. Um, if We're not going to put this part on the screen, but then I'm just going to set it up for you because Jesus set up community. And one thing I learned when I moved here, someone shared a scripture with me that's still one I love. Acts 17, 26 says that it is God who appointed our times and set the boundaries for our habitation. Who am I to question? He, he appointed the time. He set the boundaries for my habitation. Five years, six months, 27 days and four hours and a few seconds ago, here in Minnesota, because that's what God does. Jesus did exactly the same thing with his followers. He gathered them together. 40, for 40 days, he, with many convincing proofs, he shared with them, I am who I said I am. And then he taught them about the kingdom of God. Incredible. On around that 40th day, he gathered them on the Mount of Olives. He gave them a commission. He promised them power. He told them the purpose of that power, and he gave them the scope of the mission. What did he say? I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then he was gone. And I think they may have stood there thinking, what just happened to our community? Have you thought about that? Like like he was the center of community for them. What, what just happened? But it didn't stop there because Jesus had told them two important things, to, two important commands. He'd said, wait, wait, and wait in Jerusalem. He'd set a time, wait, and he'd set a boundary in Jerusalem. And so they did exactly that. And they went to some specific places, some specific gathering places where they got together. Now there were about 120 of them gathered together, and something very amazing happened. Around that 50th day, no coincidence, God created time for timing. He created time so that we get it when he says, look what I just did, and it's in my timing. And so Acts chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit came. And over each one of these 120 gathered together, over each one hovered the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were able to speak in ways they'd never been able to speak before, in languages that they'd never known before, The power of the Holy Spirit had to just be felt. It had to be, oh, it had to be incredible. But did that group of 120 people just stay in that room, experiencing something together? 
growing in community? No. Because God had also gathered at just the right time in just the right place devout Jews from all over. It says from every nation under heaven. All gathered in Jerusalem for what? For the Feast of Pentecost. Just happened to be that time. And so the scripture tells us that when they heard, they heard this mighty rushing wind. They heard people speaking in their own languages, speaking not just random things, but about the mighty deeds of God. They were drawn to it and they said, what is this? You tell them, George. So you remember uh, these apostles, the Holy Spirit comes and there's a seismic shift in the apostles' hearts. These were the guys that were cowards just less than a month before they ran at the first sign of conflict. But then they become so empowered, so bold, that the crowd thinks the only explanation for why they're speaking so boldly is that they are drunk. Peter's explanation of what is happening becomes the first Christian sermon. They're not drunk. This is what is happening. This is Jesus Christ. What happens then is after his sermon, the crowd looks at Peter, their hearts are cut to the core, and they say, Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And on that day, the church is born, 120 go to 3,000. Peter's sermon becomes the template for the church. It becomes a template for how they move. It becomes the template for how they grow because at the end of Acts chapter 2, we find out something remarkable that salvation in this early church is commonplace. Exponentially, the gospel spreads. Exponentially, people are saved. That's how they operate in community. So for context this morning, I want to throw out a few questions. When we're talking about community, specifically, what is God's community? Go ahead. This one's an easy one. It's us, the church, right? What is the purpose of the church according to Acts? Why do we exist? How were we created? How did you become a Christian? Why did you join community, God's community? The gospel, right? Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected. He became us, our Redeemer. That's how we were created. Therefore, our mandate is right out of Acts chapter 1, which Shelley talked about, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our mandate, our purpose is to manifest and proclaim the gospel. Jesus Christ. So, let's ask another question. How do we do that? How do we as a North American church normally do that? I'll tell you how I've done it in the past. I preach the love of God, right? Right from John 3.16. And that is very, very important. There's a broken world that needs to know that God loves them. But as I've been reading through Acts over and over again, what I've found is that the love of God is not explicitly mentioned at all in Acts. Never. In all the sermons and speeches throughout the 28 detailed chapters, they do not once mention the love of God. So what's the gospel that they clearly proclaim? What do they tell people? How do people know and come to Christ? All this salvation, everybody meeting Jesus? They preach Jesus Christ resurrected, Lord and Savior, and repentance. Every time. The mandate of God's community is that we spread 
this gospel movement. That is why we were created. And we're looking at this in Acts chapter 2. And I have to tell you, for me, Acts chapter 2 is kind of a weird little thing. Yeah, I like the first 13 verses that Shelley went through. I like the Holy Spirit. I like the church being empowered. And yeah, go out and get them, right? And then I like the last four verses of Acts where we talk about community. They come together after Peter's sermon. They come together. They're totally devoted to one another. The church is legit. It is love. It's all that. I love that. The thing I don't like is what I'm going to talk to you this morning about Peter's sermon, the in-between. Why don't I like it and why have I not spent a lot of time with it in my life? Is because Peter has very, very harsh words. His first sermon that sets the template for how the community grows and what's happening in the rest of Acts is hard. He has hard words. And if you look at it and you think about what happens, right? It's 3,000 people saying, we need Jesus at the end. They're all seekers from all over, everywhere, every country. This sermon is the most unseeker-friendly sermon in the history of the church. It is. So let's look at it. Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2. And remember, 3,000 people joined God's community after this sermon. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Okay? That's how the first (laughs) sermon of the church starts out. We're not drunk. The word, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. All right. Anyway, a little ironic. No. It was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a pretty good message so far. I'm in. I like it. I'm feeling pretty encouraged. But it turns. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. Skipping down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I think that's the part I struggle with a little bit. Twice now, just in case I missed it the first time, Peter again tells me a second time, you know what? You killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. How's that for the crux of a sermon on which community is built? Why is that a community is very important. We must love one another. We must build each other up. We must give generously to each other. Check out our small groups. Community is really important part of your Christian life. Why? Because you killed Jesus. I know. See this cross over here? You did this. I did this. Let's get a little context because is what Peter is saying physically accurate, right? We read from Acts chapter 1 that Jesus walks with the disciples for 40 days. The disciples go back 
And from John 14 through 16, the promise of the comforter, the helper that's going to come, they wait the 120, the Holy Spirit comes down, clothes them with power, Peter gives the first sermon. So what's the time frame in all that? Pentecost is from the Greek word penta, the prefix five, it's 50 days after Passover, it's a harvest time. We're talking about 50 to 60 days after the crucifixion. So let me just ask you a common sense question. Was everyone that was in that crowd at Pentecost there at the crucifixion physically? No, obviously not. Is Peter's sermon prescriptive for us today? Does it apply to us today? Yes, absolutely. Were you there physically when they crucified Jesus Christ? No. So what is Peter talking about? Peter is, this sermon is the heart of community. It's at the heart of God's church. It's at the heart of tension between grace and truth. This sermon is the heart of grace. This sermon is the heart of truth. You did this. I did this. We killed Jesus. I have to tell you, when I got to this part in my faith where I understood what it means to say, yes, yes, Lord, I did this. The cross is because of me. It changed me. It changed how I live. It changed how I view God's church. It changed how I view God's community. The heart of community is humility and honesty. I could not enter into authentic community without either of these two characteristics. Peter's sermon is honest. And this is very important. Because what was the first thing to destroy community? We remember back to the garden... We walked and talked with God, the perfect community. What destroyed that community? It was a lie. Lucifer came in and he convinced us that we could know what God knows. And we took that knowledge and we said, you know what, God? We're smarter than you. I know best about my life. And that is a lie that has continued from that day until this day. I've never heard a Christ follower explicitly say it. You know, George, not only am I smarter than you, but I am smarter than God too. Maybe the first part, but not the second part, right? Nobody comes out and says explicitly, I am smarter than God. But how do we live as Christ's community consistently? Like we are smarter than God. Like we know better than God. And that lie destroys community. We love justifications. We don't live according to God's ways. We like to think that if God really knew, if he understand the heart of what we're going through right now, understood the struggle, could really walk a mile in our shoes, there's no way that he would ask us to submit to his authority in our lives. Because God is a God of love. And he just wants us to be happy anyway. That's not the message of the early church. The early church is Jesus Christ, resurrected, Lord and Savior, repent. We want that caveat. We want to say, God, yeah, I get it. I really do get it, God, and I think you're right. That was a light <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I was... I was saying something good, right? I was on track. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, no. That was... 
right, awesome. All right, are you paying attention now? So anyway, we want that caveat, right? We want to say, you know what, God, I do get it, and I do think that's true, but I think that's true for the other person, maybe especially for the other person. I'm telling you, that is the first sin ever that's a context of pride. And to maintain that pride, we lie. And there's a real danger here. You lie to others, you lie to yourself about where you really stand with the creator of the universe. Pride and lies destroyed community. Humility and honesty are the tenets of community. They're at the foundation of God's church. We must guard against becoming our own idols. Do not come to church week after week, month after month, with a cold, lukewarm, mediocre heart for Christ. You will destroy your soul. You will hurt every relationship that you are in, and the biggest danger about what happens when your heart starts to cool, when your heart stops listening to the Holy Spirit, the biggest danger is that you don't even know it when it's happening. And then you wake up, and your heart is hard to the things of Christ. Who's preaching this passage? Another easy one. Peter, right? Peter. He knows exactly what it's like to be broken. Peter is the guy when Christ needed him most. When Christ was on his way to the cross, Peter denied him three times. He knows what it's like to be broken. He knows what it's like to be to fail. But then in John 21, the reinstatement of Peter is so powerful because Christ comes to Peter face to face and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Parallels the denial, reinstates Peter. Peter knows what it's like to be broken, knows what it's like to fail, knows that he is responsible for the cross, knows in his heart that he killed Jesus, but then also he knows that he is restored. He had that face-to-face with Jesus. He knows that he is redeemed. In 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24 says this about Jesus. Peter's writing about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled the insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judged justly. He himself bore our sins. In his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Christ is absorbing God's wrath toward your and my glad rebellion. We see that we are most definitely responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And this could be offensive, but I think it's profoundly beautiful because we are broken We are busted. We are in rebellion. As Christians, we like to ignore the sin, the ongoing sin in our lives. We're prone to wander. We're lustful. We're materialistic. We are self-seeking. We're self-centered. But what happens? The gospel leans in. In back to Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. 
Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Here's the beauty. Peter's sermon tells them the truth about themselves. And then the gospel invades that truth and creates an alternate opportunity for those of us that are stuck in our sin, namely that we might be freed from those sins in Christ, counted righteous with Christ, fully forgiven, no longer a slave. And this message cuts to the crowd's heart, and they say, what do we do? Peter says this in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other brother, apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. They repent of their sins. They're cut to the heart. They're aware of their sins. They are aware of what God has offered them in Christ and they move toward repentance in that. They start to pursue holiness. They start to pursue transformation. They start to live a transformed life through the ongoing confession and repentance and community with one another. And on that day, the church is born. Verse 41 says, so then. It's almost like the best words ever. So then. On that day, those who had received his word were baptized and there were added about 3,000 souls. So now we got 3,000 plus 120. Yep. It's like a big mega church, right? So now we go, that's community. We're going to ask some students to come up here and help us illustrate something. Because it didn't stop there. It wasn't about numbers. It wasn't about having your attendance recorded and knowing, you guys, I need you to come over here so that they can get you on the live stream. Come way, invade our space. Invade our space. We love it. Okay. So are we good? Because you're going to want to see this. All right, look at, oh, look at them. Pretend they're 3,120. <laughs> they love each other. They have shared experiences, shared history, shared affinity. It's awesome. How do we do community? Acts 2, 42 through 47 says this. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Listen for some of the words maybe that you haven't heard before. Let your mind think about some of the different words that, that God inspired to be included for you to hear. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. Stop there for just a second. We want you to remember some C's. If you're taking notes, write these things down. We told you we'd say, how do you do authentic community? We love these verses. They tell us some things. 
I see five to start with really easily. I bet you can come up with more. And if you do, Adam, because we want to know. I see conviction. I see people with one mind, 3,120 of them are convinced just a few months after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, they're convinced that what they believe is right. They have conviction and they act on it. And with, with one mind, they're praising God for the gospel. Yep. I see constancy in that passage. Constancy. Day by day, continually, they kept doing these same things. Constancy is an essential. These are essentials of community. I see commitment. That passage just said that they weren't just kind of standing together, you know, just we have to. They were devoting themselves, the passage said, to teaching, to prayer, to breaking bread together, to fellowshipping. They were, they were committed. I see caring or concern for one another. Because if someone had need, they shared together. They sold their own resources in order to do that. There was caring and concern. And I think together that C is an essential of community. And then I I had to work really hard with this one, so work with me on it. I see conviviality. (laughs) I I worked hard. Convivia, they were glad to be together. Did you hear it when I read it? They, day by day, day, look, just think about it. Day by day by day by day after day after day. They were together, it said, with one mind in the temple or in homes. And it says, they came together with gladness. There was conviviality. There was celebration. You can use that C if you'd rather. If you think you could go home and remember conviviality, good job. If you need celebration, it works too. It's a C. They were continually doing these things. Conviction, constancy, commitment, caring, concern, conviviality or celebration all together. Essentials of community. And we want that too. And and we think, could our church look like that? Is that that community? They were thinking, that looks good, right? Right? That's exactly what they were thinking too, and that's why we love Acts 2, 42 through 47. We think, yeah, that's awesome, and that's what we want. But the rest of Acts, this early church struggles with identity. Because what happens is they spend the bulk of their time trying to protect this community, and ultimately what happens at the end is they become inward focused. They struggle with racial tension. They struggle with who is invited into this community. They struggle with the purpose of this community. They spend so much time protecting and looking inward that what happens? God moves, persecution happens, and God moves them out into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which, by the way, was us. We were the ends of the earth when this was written. Community needs to focus on others. That's part of it. When your heart is in tune with Jesus' heart, you're naturally going to spread it out to others, right? Evangelism. And I know when I say that word, there's a lot of people thinking a lot of different things, some of your past experience, but I just want to tell you the heart of evangelism because this is a book of evangelism. Community is evangelism. That's our mandate to proclaim, manifest the gospel It's a lifestyle. It's at the heart 
of moving and grooving with Jesus. And it only happens in community. The beginning of evangelism and multiplying God's community is always repentance. You come face to face with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and you're overwhelmed. You remember that you're not just doing ministry to do ministry, but why you started in the first place, because Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, is your treasure. Jesus, forgive me for all that I put before you. You are more lovely to me than anything else. I love you more than anything. You are my treasure. A heart like that leads to the last sea in community. So we stopped in verse 47. We stopped with the fact that they were praising God. We saw all those things happening. Put it back up there, Sarah. Let's look at the end of verse 47 if we have it. If you don't, I'll read it to you. They were together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did they just have favor with one another? The scripture said that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we've missed a C. We've missed an essential to community that we got to get. So they had the conviction. They had the constancy. That's right. It's happening. They had the commitment. <laughs> they had the conviviality. They had the care and the concern. And then they had this one more thing. Starts with a C. They were contagious. <laughs> and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Oh, God bless you. That's awesome. Thank you, students. They were contagious. We can be contagious too. We have opportunities for you to come here, for us to face in and do some stuff together. Yep. We can be, con- have, uh, can be convinced, have commitment, be constant. But we're not asking you day by day by day by day to be here. We're asking you to be contagious. God bless you.